RD Talks, brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. When I Fell from the Sky by Julianne Kopke. A lightning strike at 10,000 feet saw a 17-year-old girl freefall into Amazonian rainforest and live to tell the tale. Julianne Kopke was a child well-versed in the ways of both the city and the jungle. When she was 14, her zoologist parents established the Panguana Ecological Research Station in the middle of the Peruvian rainforest. After spending two years living at the station and accompanying them on research trips into the jungle, Julianne returned to Lima to complete high school. On December 24, 1971, Julianne, then 17, boarded a flight with her mother to be with her father in Panguana for Christmas. That flight would change her young life forever. My years in Lima were wonderful. Despite my jungle experience, I was a schoolgirl. I just spent my vacations in Panguana and school days with my classmates in Lima. On the first Christmas break after my return to Lima, I flew for the very first time by myself on an aeroplane from Lima to Pucalpa. That had also been the plan for Christmas 1971. But my mother came to Lima in November. She would have preferred to fly back to Pucalpa on the day before Christmas Eve to be with my father as soon as possible. But on December 23, my high school graduation ceremony was taking place, and on the evening before that, there was a ball. I begged my mother to let me attend the graduation. All right, she said, then we'll fly on the 24th. My mother tried to get a flight on the reliable Fawcett airline, but they were all booked. The only other airline that flew to Pucalpa that day was Lanza. There was a saying, Lanza de Lanza de Panza, which roughly means Lanza lands on its belly. My father had specifically urged my mother not to fly with that airline. But the alternative would have been waiting another day, or even two, and my mother didn't have the patience for that. Ah, she said, not every plane's going to crash. And so she booked two seats. What we didn't know was that it was the last aeroplane that Lanza had. All of the others had crashed. When we arrive at the airport on the morning of December 24, it's packed. Several flights were cancelled the day before, so now hundreds of people are crowding the counters, everyone anxious to get home for Christmas. Also in the crowd, jostling for boarding passes, is the filmmaker Werner Herzog, who has already been trying indignantly for 24 hours to get seats for him at a film crew and is angry when he cannot. Finally, after 11 o'clock, our flight is called. And when we see the plane, we think it's magnificent. In my eyes, it looks as good as new. However, it's far from it, as we'll later find out. In the aeroplane, everything is completely normal. My mother and I sit in the second-to-last row, number 19. I sit by the window, as always, seat F. My mother, an ornithologist, doesn't like flying. She says it's unnatural that a bird made of metal takes off into the air. The flight from Lima to Pucalpa takes about an hour. The first 30 minutes are perfectly normal. Everyone is excited about Christmas. We're served a small breakfast. Ten minutes later, the stewardesses begin to clear up. Then, all of a sudden, we hit a storm front. Daylight turns to night and lightning flashes from all directions. An invisible power begins to shake our plane as if it were a plaything. People cry out as objects fall on their heads from the overhead lockers. Bags, toys, wrapped gifts and clothing rain down hard on us. Sandwich trays soar through the air. 
half-finished drinks pour on heads and shoulders. People scream and cry. Hopefully it all will be okay, says my mother. I can feel her nervousness. I suddenly see a blinding white light over the right wing. I don't know whether it's a flash of lightning or an explosion. I lose all sense of time. I can't tell whether this lasts minutes or a fraction of a second. I'm blinded by that blazing light. I hear my mother say calmly, Now it's all over. My ears, my head, my whole body are filled with the deep roar of the plane. Its nose slants almost vertically downwards. We're falling fast. People's screams go silent. The roar of the turbines has been erased. My mother is no longer at my side and I'm no longer in the aeroplane. I'm still strapped into my seat, but I'm alone. At an altitude of about 10,000 feet, 3,048 metres, I'm alone, and I'm falling. My freefall is quiet. I hang strapped into the seat and around me is nothing. I'm falling and the seatbelt squeezes my belly so tightly that it hurts and I can't breathe. In my ears is the roar of the air. Before I can feel fear, I lose consciousness. The next thing I remember is hanging upside down while the jungle comes spinning slowly towards me. No, it's not coming towards me, I'm falling towards it. The treetops, densely packed, remind me of broccoli. The images are blurred. I see everything as if through a fog. Then deep night surrounds me again. When I regain consciousness, I realise I'm underneath my seat. My seatbelt is unfastened, so I must have been awake at some point. I've also crawled deeper under the sheltering back of the three-seat bench. I lie there for the rest of the day and a whole night until the next morning. I am completely soaked, covered with mud. I will never forget the image I saw when I opened my eyes. The crowns of the jungle giants suffused with golden light makes everything glow. I feel a boundless abandonment. I try to stand up, but I can't. Everything goes black. I feel helpless and utterly alone. I look at my watch. It's still working. I can hear its soft ticking, but find it hard to read the time. I can't see straight. After a while, I realise my left eye is swollen shut. Through the other eye, I can only see through a narrow slit. My glasses have disappeared, but I've finally managed to read the time. It's nine o'clock. It's morning. I feel dizzy again and I lie back exhausted on the rainforest floor. What I don't know is that the largest search operation in the history of Peruvian air travel has begun. Somehow I get on my knees, but then everything goes black again and I feel so dizzy that I immediately lie back down. I try again and again, and eventually I succeed. My right collarbone feels strange. I touch it and it's clearly broken. Then I find a gash on my left calf, perhaps four centimetres long and deep, which looks like a canyon, jagged as if it had been cut by a rough metal edge. But what's strange is that it's not bleeding at all. My mother isn't there, but why? She was sitting next to me. I get down on all fours and crawl around, searching for her, calling her name, but only the voices of the jungle answer me. How could I survive my plunge with such mild injuries? Even though I was far more seriously wounded than I realised when I woke up, my injuries were laughable in comparison to the severity of my fall. Besides my collarbone, I had broken nothing, and even my flesh wounds were manageable. How could that be? Was it a miracle? I probably owe my survival to a combination of three possibilities. 
there are powerful updrafts in thunderclouds which drive everything upwards and could conceivably catch and even whirl a falling person about. Such updrafts could have cushioned my fall. So I assumed that I was simply spinning, just as a maple seed spins as it falls. And the three-seat bench, to one end of which I was fastened by my seatbelt, could have worked above me like the little wing on the maple seed that is responsible for this spinning, slowing my fall. A man who was involved in recovering the corpses later told me that only one well-preserved seat bench was found, and that was in the forest over which the giant trees were connected by a dense network of vines. Perhaps that was my seat. This tangle of vines could have cushioned and slowed my plunge. I felt no fear at all. Even as I was plummeting and fully conscious, saw the jungle whirling under me, I was aware of what was happening. I think we carry a built-in safeguard that protects us in such extreme moments from going mad or even dying from fear. When you are in the middle of a terrible event, you simply let go. The terror comes afterwards. On December 25, as I awake from my long blackout in the middle of the jungle, I'm still in the middle of the event. I'm aware that I've fallen out of the plane, but I don't doubt that I will somehow get out of this jungle. I just have to find my mother. For someone who has never been in the rainforest, it can definitely appear threatening. It seems like a wall through which green-filtered light falls, with countless shadows varying in thickness. They're scurrying, rustling, fluttering, buzzing, gurgling, clicking, whistling and snarling. And there's the dampness. Even when it's not raining, moisture drips on you constantly. The smells are unusual. Often it smells of musty rottenness, of the plants that intertwine and ramble, grow and decay. In these tendrils, snakes can sit, perfectly camouflaged. And there is an abundance of insects. They are the true rulers of the jungle. Bugs, ants, beetles and butterflies. Mosquitoes that like to suck blood. Flies that lay eggs under the skin or in wounds. Stingless wild bees that like to cling to your hair. I encountered them all but I'd lived long enough in the jungle to become acquainted with it. As zoologists, there was almost nothing my parents hadn't shown me. I only had to find this knowledge in my concussion-fogged head. This knowledge was necessary for my survival. Suddenly, I'm seized by an intense thirst. Thick drops of water sparkle on the leaves around me, and I lick them up. I walk in small circles around my seat, aware of how quickly you can lose your orientation in the jungle. That's why I'm on alert. I memorise a particularly striking tree and don't take my eyes off it. To my astonishment, I find no trace of the crash. No wreckage, no people. Then I discover a bag of sweets. Suddenly I hear the hum of engines. Aeroplanes are circling over me. I know immediately what they're looking for. I look up into the sky but the trees are too dense. There's no way I can make myself noticeable here. A feeling of powerlessness overcomes me, and the thought, I have to get out of the thick forest. And then the planes leave, and only the sounds of the jungle remain. I know this forest, and suddenly I notice a sound, which has been there all along, but only now penetrates my consciousness. The sound of dripping, tinkling water, a soft burble. Nearby I find a spring, feeding a tiny rivulet. This fills me with hope. Not only have I found water to drink, but I'm also convinced that this little stream will show me the way to my rescue. 
So I follow the rivulet, and at first that's not so simple, because there are often tree trunks that are lying across it, or dense undergrowth blocking my way. Little by little, the rivulet grows wider and turns into a stream in an actual bed, which is partly dry, so that I can walk relatively easily along what is about a 50 centimetre wide channel. At around six o'clock it grows dark, and I look in the stream bed for a suitable spot, protected at the back, where I can spend the night. I eat another sweet. On December 28, my watch, a gift from my grandmother, stops for good. I set one foot in front of the other. The stream turns into a larger stream, finally into a small river. The days are all alike. I try to count them as I go so I don't lose my sense of time. Eventually I've sucked the last sweet. I don't dare to eat anything else. Since it's the rainy season, there's barely any fruit. I don't have a knife with me and cannot hack palm hearts out of the stems. Nor can I catch fish or cook roots. Much of what grows in the jungle is poisonous, so I keep my hands off what I don't recognise. But I do drink a great deal of water from the stream. Despite my counting, the days get mixed up. On December 29 or 30, the fifth or sixth day of my trek, I hear a bird call and my mood turns into euphoria. It's the unmistakable call of hoatsons, a mixture of buzzing and groaning. At home in Panguana, I heard this call often. These birds nest exclusively near open stretches of water, near larger rivers, where people settle. Finally, I'm standing on the bank of the large river, but there's not a human soul in sight. Where are the search planes? I hear them only in the distance. Time passes and the engine noise I've heard almost constantly over the past few days doesn't return. Finally, I grasp the fact that they've given up. Probably all the others have been rescued, except me. Except me. A boundless anger overcomes me. How can they simply turn around now that I've finally reached an open stretch of water after all these days? But as quickly as the anger flares up, it dies out and gives way to a terrible despair. But I don't give up. This is still a river. And where there is a river, people cannot be far. The riverbank is much too densely overgrown for me to carry on hiking along it. I know there are dangerous stingrays resting in the riverbanks or lying in rapids, and they can't be seen. I walk carefully. Making progress is difficult, so I swim in the middle of the river. In the deep water, I'm safe from stingrays. Instead, there are piranhas, but I've learnt that they only become dangerous in standing water. Certainly caimans are to be expected, but they too generally don't attack people. So I yield to the current. When the sun descends, I search for a reasonably safe spot on the bank where I can spend the night. I always try to find a place where I have protection at my back, either from a slight slope or a large tree. Sleep is unthinkable. Either mosquitoes or midges keep me awake. They seem to want to devour me alive. There's buzzing around my head and the bothersome pests try to crawl into my ears and nose. Those nights are unbearable. Those are the times when I despair. I wonder where the other passengers are. I go on swimming. I'm getting weaker. Though I don't feel hungry, everything is getting harder. I drink a lot of the river water which fills my stomach and I know I should eat something. How many days have I been on the move already? Seven? Or eight? The next morning I feel a sharp pain in my upper back. When I touch it with my hand, it's bloody. While I've been swimming in the water, 
The sun has burnt my skin, which is peeling. They are second-degree burns, I will later learn. I can't do anything about that and continue to drift in the water. My bad eyes repeatedly fool me. Often I'm convinced I see the roof of a house on the riverbank. My ears deceive me too, and I'm completely sure that I hear chickens clucking. Then I'm annoyed and scold myself. How can you be so stupid? I'm tired, so horribly tired. I fantasize about food, elaborate feasts and simple meals. Each morning it gets harder for me to stand up from my uncomfortable spot and get into the cold water. Is there any sense in going on? Yes, I tell myself, gathering all my strength. I have to keep going. Here I will perish. I spend the tenth day drifting in the water. I'm constantly bumping into logs and it costs me a great deal of strength to climb over them and not break any bones in these collisions. In the evening I find a gravel bank that looks like a good place to sleep. I settle down on it, doze a little, blink. Then I see something that doesn't belong here. There on the river bank is a boat. I rub my eyes, look three times and it's still there. A boat. I swim over and touch it. Only then can I really believe it. I notice a beaten trail leading from the river five to ten metres up the bank. I have to get up there. Here I will definitely find people. But I'm so weak. It takes me hours to cover those few metres. I see a tambo, a simple shelter, but I can't see anyone around. A path leads into the forest, and I'm certain that the owner of the boat will emerge at any moment. No one comes. It gets dark and I decide to spend the night here. The next morning I wake up and still no one has shown up. Maybe I really should keep going. Then it begins to pour with rain. I crawl into the tambo, wrap a tarpaulin around my shoulders and feel nothing. In the afternoon the rain stops and my mind tells me I have to keep going. Against all common sense I remain seated. I don't have the strength any longer to struggle to my feet. It's already twilight when I hear voices. I can't believe it. I'm imagining it, I think, as I have so many other things already. But they really are human voices. They're approaching. And then three men come out of the forest and stop in shock. They even recoil involuntarily. I speak to them in Spanish. I'm a girl who was in the Lancer crash, I say. My name is Julianne. Of 92 passengers and crew, Julianne was the sole survivor. By the time forest workers found her on January 3, 1972, she had spent 11 days in the jungle. On January 12, Julianne's father identified the remains of her mother, Maria. And in the months to follow, increasing media pressures caused him to send Julianne to Germany to escape the journalist vultures and complete her studies. Now a biologist herself, Julianne returns to Panguana often, where the station she inherited continues to welcome scientists and researchers from all over the world. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.